Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Andrea Spiker from the University of Wisconsin. Today I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Ben Dome, the founder and medical director of the American Hip Institute and the founder and chair of the American Hip Institute Research Foundation. Dr. Dome was the senior author on a paper titled Mid to Long-Term Outcomes of Hip Arthroscopy, a Systematic Review, which was published in the March 2021 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include Cynthia Kin, Dr. David Maldonado, Camille Goh, and Drs. Jacob Chapira and A.J. Lal. Welcome, Dr. Dome, and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Honored to be here. So, Ben, this study analyzed the largest patient cohort to date with mid- to long-term outcomes after hip arthroscopy. Just to start our conversation, can you give the listeners an idea of what inspired this systematic review? Well, when I began doing hip presentation and hip arthroscopy, we were very much a fringe field of sports medicine. Uh, and it was very new. And uh, uh, like with many new things, you heard a lot of criticism and skepticism. Uh, the, arthro the arthroscope is the tool of the devil and so forth. Um, shoulder surgeons heard this 20 or 30 years ago, and uh, the hip arthroscopy uh, crowd heard this uh, 10 or so years ago. Uh, and so we were out on a limb. Uh, and whenever uh, we're out on a limb doing something new, it's important to document uh, outcomes. The difference in medicine between an innovator and a quack uh, is uh, whether or not they document their outcomes and whether they publish uh, their results in many regards. Uh, so uh, over the last decade, we've seen an explosion of evidence and data for hip preservation. Uh, and much of that was uh, short-term data. Uh, obviously, over the years, the sample sizes have grown and the follow-up has grown. Uh, so throughout this evolution, it has been absolutely vital to the progress of the field that we continue to follow the longest-term outcomes uh, that exist uh, with the largest sample sizes that exist to produce the uh, most uh, uh, robust evidence that we can for or against uh, the uh, procedures that have been done and uh, to further parse out uh, both the indications uh, uh, for the procedures amongst patients as well as uh, the success and failures of the uh, various individual sub-procedures uh, that we perform. Uh, so we saw an opportunity at this point to publish, as you said, what is the uh, largest uh, series, uh, largest systematic review in the literature to date uh, with the longest term follow-up uh, in our field on hip preservation uh, to uh, further the literature and to contribute to its uh, continued evolution and progress. Yeah, thank you for that insight. And as somebody who's newer in the field of hip preservation, I truly appreciate all the work that you and others have done to make it much more of a mainstream procedure and field. Um, I still run into the naysayers, so I, I can truly understand what you've gone through and uh, literature like this has really been helpful. So uh, would you mind just very briefly discussing uh, what you thought the main findings of this review were and were these in line with your own experience? Sure, uh, so the uh, nutshell is this is a big series, uh, 13 articles, uh, were included in this uh, systematic review, uh, four were level three, nine were level four, and a total of uh, 1,571 hips were included. 
the average follow-up uh, being anywhere uh, between uh, 60 to 240 months. Um, the uh, most common indications uh, were label tears and FAI or femoral tabular uh, impingement syndrome. The, the big take-home is that the results were positive. There were, there were very favorable improvements in the patient-reported outcomes in all of the studies, essentially, using a variety of different PRO measures. Uh, the uh, conversion to uh, hip arthroplasty at five and 10-year points uh, did range. There was a fair amount of variability uh, between the studies. Uh, and uh, at the five-year point, it ranged uh, between three and 18%, and at the 10-year point, between uh, two and 32%. Um, there was even one study with 20-year follow-up uh, that had a conversion rate of uh, 41%. Uh, so these, these were uh, important numbers to track. It's important to look at the variability as well and try to parse out uh, what are the things that create that variability? Uh, when we have when we have no variability, there's nothing much interesting to look at. But when we have variability like this, we have the opportunity to sift through which things are working and which things are not working. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And what do you think some of those factors were that contributed to this variability in the studies? Well. So keep in mind the time frame of uh, the patients performed in this study. So this is uh, mid to long-term follow-up. So these are patients who were uh, uh, done more than five years ago, and in many cases more than 10 years ago, when the field was much earlier in its evolution. Uh, so these were times when we were just starting to establish that uh, labral repair was better than labral debridement. And labral debridement at that time largely meant labral excision. Uh, so uh, just like every field has uh, lived through the evolution of thinking that certain structures were vestigial and not necessary, uh, the ACL, the meniscus, uh, uh, both lived through that. The labor lived through it as well. Uh, and uh, early on, labral tears were often uh, largely debrided or excised. Um, so um, that, there's been an obvious evolution of how we treat the labrum, and today uh, a goal is clearly labral preservation. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, principles that uh, uh, I and American Hip Institute have championed over the years is not only preserve the labrum, but anatomic preservation of the labrum, uh, where we uh, take measures to make sure we're not just preserving the structure, but actually restoring its anatomy so that it seals the ball in the socket and seals the lubricant fluid in the joint. And if we can't do it with a labor repair, we subsequently evolved the uh, techniques for labor reconstruction uh, to uh, replace uh, an insufficient labor. So these are things that evolved uh, over the course of, of time. Uh, and the patients included in the study are uh, in this evolution, they're, they're, they're during this uh, time of uh, evolution. So there's there was a lot of variability at the time uh, in terms of what was being done in various centers. Uh, I myself, when I did my uh, uh, hip fellowship, uh, went to five different thought leading centers around the world and found five very different approaches uh, at that time. Some were repairing every labrum, some were excising every labrum, some were uh, doing impingement work, some were not doing impingement work. 
some were all uh, open and some were all arthroscopic. Uh, obviously, the subject of this uh, paper is arthroscopic, but uh, the, the point being there was huge variability in the procedures that were actually being performed during this time period between various centers. Uh, so I think there has been, since that time, a fair amount of convergence in our thinking. Uh, there, there has been the establishment of conferences, uh, of, of society, and various other means of, of sharing ideas across the field, such that uh, the field has converged some, and there's probably somewhat less variability uh, today in surgical approaches, but there remain many controversies even today, and there remains variability. Um, a more recent example has been the treatment of the capsule, uh, the uh, preservation of the capsule with uh, capsulography uh, and or um, augmentation of capsular restraint with the capsular plication. Another, um, sub another subject and procedure that uh, I and uh, American Hip Institute have championed over uh, the last 10 years, uh, but when we started championing it, it was not ever talked about. Uh, the uh, capsule was routinely either uh, cut or excised materially. And it was many, many, many years of uh, many lectures and many papers uh, that uh, moved the field somewhat in the direction of capsular uh, preservation and or augmentation. Uh, and uh, even today, I don't think there's complete consensus on that topic on uh, whether it matters to preserve the capsule, and if so, how the capsule uh, should be uh, preserved. Um, so still a lot of variability in how uh, labral tear is treated today, a lot of variability in how capsule is treated, a lot of variability in what what is the optimal uh, impingement target, uh, what, how should we do a reshaping of impingement both on the acetabular and femoral side. So today there's been convergence in the names of the procedures that we say we perform. Uh, for example, we say we perform a femoroplasty, but a femoroplasty at three different centers may be three very different femoroplasties. A labor repair at three different centers may be three very different labor repairs. Uh, so I, I think that the convergence that we've seen today is certainly in the, in the words and in the semantics, uh, but not necessarily in the technicalities of the procedure and the convergence of the semantics may actually be hiding continued variation today in exactly how the procedures are performed technically. So that's a long answer to a short question, but uh, the uh, gist of my answer is that the variability in the outcomes was uh, likely related to variability in surgical procedures and variability in patient education, excuse me, patient um, uh, indications between the various centers involved in the study. Yeah, thank you. That was a really excellent summary. It is quite remarkable how much the, the field has evolved and even just the past few years. Given that we are now seeing more of a convergence, um, but I, I really like your insight about the fact that um, that there may be less of a convergence than we think. What are your thoughts on ways that we as a uh, group of surgeons and as a field can continue to improve on the variability that we're still seeing within hip arthroscopy? 
Well, first of all, convergence is, is generally a good thing because hopefully we usually converge on the best procedures and the best techniques, uh, and the best indications, um, though uh, not always and fields have made mistakes. Um, but the, uh, the convergence results from communication and uh, our ability to share ideas with one another, uh, to share, share our technical pearls with one another, these are the things that allow for us to benefit from each other's experience and benefit from each other's ideas. Uh, and uh, I, I can tell you that no one surgeon came up with all the ideas themselves. Uh, any, any good surgeon has uh, taken the best of the ideas from every other surgeon that they know. And you know the old adage that uh, good artists borrow and great artists steal. Well, in, in mm -hmm. surgeon, in, in surgical realms, it, we don't steal from each other, we share with each other, and um, I think sharing is a, a central tenet of uh, academic pursuits in, in medicine, um, and sharing is publishing, sharing is presenting at meetings, uh, um, doing live uh, surgeries, uh, inviting other surgeons into our OR as observers. These are all means by which we can uh, share our pearls, our secrets, our are um, little bits of uh, wisdom, uh, and uh, there there are more vehicles today than ever before for us to do that, um, both in person and through uh, digital media, where we can share surgical uh, videos easily and uh, things of that nature. It's truly an incredible time to be a surgeon uh, because never before in history have we been able to share so much, and I think that um, is has brought surgical institutions out of their silos and enabled them to communicate with each other uh, like never before today. Um, so I, I, I do hope that uh, we'll continue to see convergence as it were um, in that we'll continue to share uh, our ideas with one another and each benefit from the best of each other's uh, ideas. Um, and uh, today I think uh, since that has already happened in terms of the, the words and the semantics, the hardest part is defining what we're actually doing. Um, so, uh, Andre, you may have your method for doing a, a femoroplasty, and I may have my method for doing a femoroplasty, and we may each have uh, in mind what, what is our optimal target for what it should look like at the end of our femoroplasty. But that's much harder to communicate uh, in words, um, and, and it'd be very hard for either of us to explain in words what are the differences between our approaches and, and what we do because uh, you can't encompass it in one word like femoroplasty. It would be a paragraph at least uh, if that paragraph even uh, got us there. So, so I think um, we're, we're, in a, we're in an age now where uh, further convergence and further sharing is going to hinge not just on words but actually on seeing it, uh, actually on uh, see, seeing the things that we do and how we do them uh, so that we can uh, all help each other as a field uh, move our skills and our uh, indications forward. Yeah, thank you, Ben. I agree with you completely. And, you know, I think the the thought that technology is really helping us advance exponentially is key. And this podcast, for example, is another way in which uh, we're really helping share and communicate ideas from someone like yourself who has such wonderful experience in this field. So, again, we really appreciate your participating. 
so just a couple more questions here. So um, you also work with trainees, including hip preservation fellows. So how would you say the current status of hip arthroscopy and the findings related to this study change what you're telling them about hip arthroscopy? These are mid to long-term outcomes. Uh, and this, um, anytime we're doing something new, the question is always what are going to be the long-term outcomes. Uh, so uh, uh, earlier in our evolution, that was a hard question to answer because we didn't have long-term outcomes. And today, having them, I, I think, benefits the patient and the clinician greatly. Um, uh, once upon a time, uh, medicine was largely paternalistic, and the doctor told the patient what uh, they should do. Today, at least in this country, uh, uh, the prevailing approach, I believe, is one of shared decision-making. And certainly that's the approach that I have espoused, is an approach of shared decision-making, where we educate the patient and we empower the patient to make the decision that is best for themselves. Uh, so if I take two patients, I tell them both, you can do an arthroscopy on you and there is a 25% uh, uh, likelihood that you will uh, wind up having a conversion to a total hip replacement in the next 10 years. One of those patients may say, that's great. I'll be happy with those odds. Let's go. And the other patient may say, that's terrible. I want to go straight to a hip replacement. But that's a personal difference in perspective between two patients that they should be allowed to have. Uh, and the only way that they can have their input and express their perspective is if we educate them with data and evidence uh, that exists uh, and allow them to make an educated decision through a shared decision-making process. So it is my hope that the data that uh, we have presented here in this study helps that. It helps uh, my, my trainees, helps our, our current fellows after they graduate to further educate their patients uh, about the mid and long-term outcomes to, to help them make the right decision for themselves. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you. And one last question. You identified in this study that the most common predictors associated with negative mid and long-term outcomes were osteoarthritis and increased age. And so you mentioned this a little bit about the shared decision-making, but what are your thoughts on how this affects whether you indicate patients who are older or who, or who have some osteoarthritis in the hip for hip arthroscopy? Right. So uh, it's an excellent question. Every study that we've done on this at American Hip Institute and most studies that have been done at most institutions have consistently shown osteoarthritis and age as uh, important predictors of um, outcomes after surgery. In other words, the younger the age and the less the arthritis, the better the outcomes. Uh, and this has been really quite consistent, certainly extremely consistent across our registry and every study that we've uh, ever done. And uh, we've shown this in a variety of ways. Um, now, having said that, I am a friend of no cutoff. I, I don't believe that we should use exact cutoffs. I think we should treat the individual uh, because there are an infinite number of combinations of, uh, of patient characteristics that we should not oversimplify. If we take just these two variables, for example, osteoarthritis and age, 
let's consider them together instead of in isolation. Uh, so instead of having a cutoff for how, what age is too much, combine the two. So we can do a hip arthroscopy and do it successfully in somebody who is 65 years old. But if they have arthritis as, uh, as well, even a small amount, that likelihood of success goes down dramatically and they may be better indicated for a hip replacement. Conversely, we can do a hip arthroscopy in somebody who has significant cartilage damage and do it successfully if they're 20 years old. So in the 20-year-old 20, 20 with significant cartilage damage, we may indicate them for uh, hip preservation surgery, but if that same person is 65, then uh, we would more likely indicate them for an arthroplasty. So we're looking at the two variables together in tandem rather than uh, in isolation. Uh, and that, that's a very important principle which we can extend far beyond these uh, uh, two variables to consider all the patient prognostic variables that we've identified uh, in various studies. Um, one of the most exciting areas of, of work that we're working on right now at, at AHI is uh, individualized patient prognostication. So we've created a, a patient algorithm, uh, which a prognostication algorithm, which allows us to plug in the individual patient's characteristics, including their age, their uh, joint space, and other features of arthritis, a variety of radiographic and demographic factors. And the algorithm will then spit out their likelihoods of success in a variety of ways in, the, in terms of their survivorship at every time point uh, from one year through 10 years, uh, their likelihood of uh, meeting MCIs or PROs, and a variety of other uh, measures of success. The, the prognosis that it spits out is derived from that individual patient's characteristics, but it's based on the experience of over 5,000 hip arthroscopies that came before it. So we can basically interpolate where does that patient's individual uh, characteristics place them amongst those 5,000 uh, or so arthroscopies rather, rather than simply quoting the results of a previous study, we can individualize it. Uh, and I, I feel that that's where we as a field need to go. Uh, this is uh, maybe one step beyond evidence-based medicine, if you will. So. Uh, uh, the, the concept of evidence-based medicine is predicated on the idea that we look at um, a cohort of uh, 100 or 1,000 patients that were done previously, and we say these were their uh, average outcomes, so uh, therefore, uh, uh, when I'm speaking to my patients in front of me, I say these are, these are the average outcomes in the study, so this is your average predicted outcome. But what if that patient that I'm speaking to is not the average patient? Uh, then the average from the evidence that I'm citing doesn't necessarily apply perfectly. Uh, and that's where I feel that uh, the next level past evidence-based medicine is actually individualized medicine, where we use the evidence but individualize it to the individual patient. This has already been done in fields like cancer treatment, where treatments are today being individualized. It used to be they would give the same chemotherapy regimen to, to everybody. Today, they take the patient's individual characteristics and individualize the uh, treatment regimen to the individual patient, and the individual cancer 
based on markers, based on demographics, uh, and, and so forth, which has made for huge strides in the treatment of cancer. And today, we need to do that in orthopedics. Uh, we need to go from evidence-based medicine to individualized uh, medicine. So uh, back to your question about consideration of age and arthritis, these are two of the most predictive prognostic factors. They are not the only prognostic factors. Uh, and no prognostic factor should be used in isolation. We should consider them all together as we individualize the treatment recommendations for the individual patient. Well, thank you. That is very exciting. And uh, I agree with you. This is where we need to go in orthopedics. And I'm, I'm excited to learn more about what you found at AHI. Thank you so much, Ben, for sharing your thoughts with us today. It has been a pleasure to speak with you. Dr. Dome's article titled Mid to Long-Term Outcomes of Hip Arthroscopy, a Systematic Review can be found in the March 2021 issue of Arthroscopy Journal or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this episode of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal.